Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. In this edition, Professor Jeremy Black, whose books include Naval Warfare, A Global History Since 1860, and Combined Operations, talks to the critic's deputy editor, Graham Stewart, about the reach and organisation of Britain's armed forces in protecting and expanding the British Empire and expeditionary campaigns around the world in the Victorian era. Professor Jeremy Black, in the 40 years or so between the end of the Napoleonic Wars and the Crimean War, the British Army has seemed to have stagnated in terms of reforms and innovation under the leadership of uh, the great Iron Duke, the Duke of Wellington. Is that a fair perception? It was continuing to fight um, what we might now call minor wars. They may not have seemed minor for those fighting them at, at the time. Surely lessons were being learned continually throughout, throughout that period and adaptation was taking place. Well, that's a really good question. I mean, the usual line that is taken is that the British didn't do terribly well in the Crimean War um, and that therefore this proved that their army was in a mess. Um, I certainly don't think they did terribly well at the outset of the Crimean War, but often uh, armies didn't do well, same navies actually, in the opening campaigns of a war. Um, my own view is that the classic features of the 18th century and early 19th century British army, what, and British military as a whole, was its wide ranging capability, its ability to operate within Europe and outside Europe. And that, I would say, remained the case um, in the period we're talking about. What that meant, of course, is that um, an army which, shall we say, was a relatively modest size had obvious problems if it was to be uh, obliged to take on a major continental power. Um, but yes, I, would, I think sometimes that there is an exaggeration uh, of the failings of the British army. And this is part and parcel of a general Victorian pattern, which you see at church states and in other respects, which is to argue that the Ancien Regime was anachronistic, redundant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and that you needed major new Victorian uh, reforms in order to improve matters. Well, I think we can ask a whole host of questions about that analysis. I think it's often a misreading of the prior situation. After all, it wasn't as though the British Army did terribly in, for example, 1812 to 1815. So it's a misreading of the prior situation. I think it can be a misreading of the uh, benefit of what we call reform. Um, and I think it's too simple a unidirectional pattern of history. So I'd be a bit wary of that one. Mm. What was the driving um, strategy with the British Army during this period? There's a long hangover of fear about a standing army and therefore wanting to have a small army and also a natural focus on, on the Royal Navy. Is there a sense though that India can be left to the East India Company regiments and that really all is needed is a small uh, a smallish force which can be upscaled come a, a major continental engagement or what, 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 is, what are the driving assumptions? 
that again is an excellent question. I'd say the driving assumption is that Britain's defence and interests fundamentally rely on the Navy, and the Navy is fit for purpose. Indeed, in the uh, after the Napoleonic Wars, in the first 15 years after that period, uh, there is the dramatic um, intimidation, bombardment of Algiers, there's the Battle of Cape Navarino, the late, last battle of the age of fighting sail, and there is the British Navy starting to uh, develop uh, steamships, and um, in the beginning of the 1840s, the Navy proves well up to power projection um, into Chinese waters and up Chinese rivers, the Yangtze. So the Navy, I think, comes number one. Number two, uh, as far as the army is concerned, there is a, a, a wish after the Napoleonic Wars dramatically to reduce the size of expenditure. The army is cut, uh, which in fact is a form of efficiency because very large force would not have been easy to use. Um, and I would say that the army as a force of, is it as it were, separate regiments sent on particular tasks remains pretty good. And I've, I've used the example of China. Um, I think the, um, the British military did quite creditably in the um, early 1840s in the so-called First Opium War. Um, Obviously, there are dramatic failings of the um, uh, First Anglo-Afghan War, at least initially, is not a brilliant success. Um, but I think we know enough about our recent experiences in Afghanistan to not necessarily argue that modern militaries are ipso facto more effective, even though they have better technology. Mm. Uh, the Duke of Wellington's role as Commander-in-Chief of the Forces is he by now an old man, um, I don't want to say resting on his laurels, but someone who has developed a fixed view of things? Or is he, I mean, you, you've mentioned some of the, the battles, uh, some of the campaigns which are at least relatively successful during this period. Is he someone who actually um, has quite devolved command and, and allows others to take decisions? Well, that's interesting. Uh, I mean, First of all, the, there is an, a really good uh, recent study. The second volume of Rory Muir's biography of Wellington goes from 1815, including the coverage of the uh, campaign of that year to the end. So I think, and it's a big book, and I think I would refer people primarily to that. But what I would say, taking up my earlier point, is yes, one can find, if one likes, issues with Wellingtonian command, but I think that the frame of reference is a difficult one. People so often use the frame of reference of what is going to happen in the 1850s. Um, I actually think if you're looking at the um, 1820s and 1830s, I'm not sure that's necessarily a terribly helpful um, framework for judging the, um, the ability of the British Army at that point. And as I said, I mean, the major role of the military is, is naval. The army only has limited resources. It doesn't have the size or scale of, for example, those of Austria or Russia. It is primarily an adjunct of the Navy for home defense and for transoceanic power projection. And it does that pretty well. <laughs> you know, it does that pretty well. Um, but obviously, tasking as with any army affects it and the tasking of the Crimean War is a formidable is a formidable challenge. 
Is there a clear strategy through the 1820s to the early 1850s, which is led by uh, the military or is led by successive administrations at uh, Westminster and Whitehall? So I suppose my question is, is it the top hats or the brass hats who are really driving uh, military strategy, particularly as it relates to foreign policy? Well, as you may know, I've, I've written a book recently, a couple of books on strategy. And I think one of the problems with the discussion of strategy is so often people ignore the primacy of what I call tasking. And tasking is essentially politically set. There may well be a input from the military as to what is practical, but tasking is fundamentally politically set. So let me give you an example. Um, in 1846, the British come close to war with America over the Oregon question. And obviously there are military preparations uh, for this conflict, uh, both uh, the uh, as far as the garrison in Canada is concerned, as far as warships in the Western Atlantic based on the port at Bermuda is concerned, and as far as British preparations in the Pacific are concerned. But essentially the entire crisis uh, in terms of British policymaking is driven by the civilian politicians, the civilian politicians who are reacting to what they see as an aggressive policy by President Polk um, and his demand that, as it were, British Columbia should be become part of America. The civilian politicians are willing to threaten war. The Americans become more reasonable, A, because they don't want to fight, uh, so that to that respect, British force operates as a deterrent. And secondly, because they uh, are more affected by the deteriorating relations and greater possibilities for America, deteriorating relations with Mexico. So in a sense, that, which is the major crisis, in my view, of that period, the late 1840s, um, is one that's entirely driven by, uh, if you want to call it, civilian policymakers. Um, it's civilian policymakers who determine whether Britain should or shouldn't go to war with Mehmed Ali of Egypt as he expands um, uh, his forces in his territories into Syria. And this leads to, you know, British dispatch of forces to Acre. It leads to the British capture of Aden. Um, you know, it, the military job is to execute here, but it's not the military that are sitting there in some bunker underneath horse guards saying to the, or the Admiralty, saying to the government, we need to fight over this. I mean, it's the, that is not the way it is done. So I would say that um, a... Uh, a process. And remember, the, the civilian policymakers of these years are people who in a junior capacity had been there during the Napoleonic years. We're thinking of people like Aberdeen, for example, or Palmerston. So they have their own views on what is appropriate and possible. They have their own intentions and, and uh, understandings of British strategy. And they're certainly not dependent on those who are military in order to have uh, and to see how they should take these forward. Well, Palmerston is obviously uh, a man, a politician very focused on foreign policy, but also someone who knows his own mind very clearly. Is it right to see the, the Palmerstonian age, which obviously uh, coincides with the Crimean War, 
as as a step change, or is it just a, another part of the process which uh, you know should be seen on its own terms and, and doesn't establish new precedents? Again, that's very interesting. Well, Palmerston dies in eighteen sixty five as prime minister, and by eighteen sixty five you've had much of, not complete, Italian unification, and you're starting to see the rise of Prussia. Um, so Palmerston dies um, in the midst of, on the eve of, a very major and significant change in European power politics. But if you think of Palmerston, as it were, in his heyday, I think you would fairly say that Palmerston is a master of the act of the limited step. Um, if it's like um, sit, speak softly and carry a big stick, the Teddy Roosevelt uh, dictum, um, uh, Palmerston knows how to use military displays and limited war in order to achieve British goals. Um, the comparison also with George Wash with another American leader, George Washington, is interesting because um, uh, Palmerston's not really interesting interested in entangling alliances. Um, and I think he's quite effective. I mean, obviously, there are some crises in which he uh, succeeds more than others. Um, he finds it difficult to sustain relations with Napoleon III, though much of that is Napoleon III, up to Napoleon III. But yes, I think Palmerston is quite impressive. I mean, if you want to play the counterfactual, which I don't think here is terribly helpful, you could say that maybe Britain should have acted more vigorously towards the two power, the issue of unification for the two powers that are going to limit its options in the succeeding century, which is one, obviously, we've already mentioned Germany and German unification. But the second one, of course, is the United States. Um, there are war panics with the United States in 1861 and 1862. And there was the argument that, you know, Britain should recognize the Confederacy, um, seek to ensure trade with it and be willing to uh, risk a war with the Union accordingly. Um, and, you know, there were some figures uh, who at the time or subsequently, Salisbury is one, who wondered whether Britain wouldn't have been better off fighting the Americans. But obviously that was not the policy pursued. Um, so what one could argue is that Palmerston um, acts in, within a limited parameter in using force, but certainly doesn't want a major war. The Crimean War obviously comes as a rude shock um, British forces out there have to learn various lessons, not just about generalship, but about uh, fighting in, in difficult conditions. Um, are, are the lessons learned? Do things fundamentally change from that? Or actually, after the, uh, after the fighting's over, it, it, it's not until the, the uh, reforms of the Gladstone years, the 1870s, the 1880s, the Cardwell, the Childers, the, the Cardwell and the uh, Childers reforms, that, that really we see very significant structural change? Well, uh, it depends how you want to make this judgment. There are, first of all, there are several different assessments of the Crimean War. There's the standard assessment, which focuses on the operations in Crimea. There's the alternative assessment, to which Andrew Lambert is the most important uh, protagonist, which argues that the major British uh, intention and focus was in fact on the naval forces sent into the Baltic, and that the reason these don't engage more uh, attention is because the Russian fleet didn't want to come out and fight. Um, 
let's start with Crimea. Um, uh, the British are able to land their force uh, and the French force successfully. They're able to sustain them. Um, they mount a, the siege of Sevastopol. Um, Russian attempts to cut the supply lines between the port at Balaclava and Sebastopol, the British lines at Sebastopol fail. Um, and in essence, the British in the end and the French succeed. Uh, yes, there's been unfortunate casualties along the way and they've shown the weaknesses of the British supply system. But I think it's fair to say that most of these have been sorted out the following year. So on the one hand, the British manage it. What you could ask is a slightly different question, which is how sensible was sending a force to the to Crimea? And there's several ways of looking at that. Um, you know, what precisely were they going to do? The I, there, there was no way they were going to mount a main body invasion of a central area of Russia, as Napoleon had tried in 1812, or Charles XII of Sweden had tried in 1708-9, and indeed as Hitler was to try in 1941. They're hitting an ancillary target um, focusing on the, the, the port at Sevastopol, which had proved the base of the Russian fleet that had smashed the Turkish Black Sea fleet, fleet off Sinope in 1853. And they succeed in that. It would have been a more conclusive victory um, if they'd managed likewise to uh, force an engagement in the Gulf of Finland. But that's really quite a difficult task. And there is separate questions as to how well uh, British warships would have manoeuvred in those shallow waters. So I'm not sure that one should focus on it on failure. I mean, you know, that's rather like taking the, you know, to argue that the British military failed in World War One and ignore the fact that actually Britain was a victor power and the Germans were defeated. Uh, in other words, there were lots of serious um, institutional organizational failings um, uh, but, you know, they actually achieve their goals. Now, if you then ask the question, did they learn the lessons? Um, well, there was a measure of institutional improvement thereafter. Um, the, but, you know, they go, I mean, in a way, there are other wars, the Indian Mutiny from 1857 to 1859, um, the Second Opium War, otherwise known as the Arrow War with China from 1857 to 1860. They're engaged in a whole host of struggles. Um, and if anything, the Indian Mutiny uh, was a much more serious struggle. It wasn't an optional struggle for Britain, as the Crimean War was. Um, but they, you know, they succeed in the Crimean War, they succeed in the Indian Mutiny, they succeed in the uh, war in China, they succeed in over uh, uh, defeating difficult opponents in the Maori Wars in um, uh, New Zealand. So you could argue that in practical terms, they don't need the Cardwell reforms. Um, I'm not sure I would be terribly happy with that view, because I think always, it never hurts to have to you know, be have one's processes stand up to to scrutiny, uh, but it would be wrong, as I've said already, to take the view that the early system was in some way redolent of failure. And hey, presto, the Victorians wave a magic wand and it all gets better. I don't think that's helpful as an approach. I mean, it certainly reflects uh, what the protagonists of those ideas uh, said. But I mean, as you may know, there's quite a lot of work on the Cardwell reforms, which argue that uh, they weren't always as effective as their protagonists argued. 
one of the impressions given about the cardinal reforms is sometimes that, that it, it created in, in effect an imperial army, an army equipped to fight um, colonial wars. Is that true? I mean, after all, the, the um, British armed forces had been had been fighting um, you know, from Burma to the northwest frontier to Africa uh, in in in, uh, in Asia Pacific. Um, you know, at various stages throughout the, the 19th century about waiting for the Cardinal reforms. How was it done before the Cardinal reforms and how was it done afterwards? Yes, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there were, uh, you know, the, Brit the British army had engaged in appreciable numbers in transoceanic warfare um, throughout the 18th century and in the early 19th century. So the Caldwell reforms um, to do with things like um, the organisation of recruitment, to do with things like um, how best to appoint and promote the officer corps, uh, how to organise uh, regiments. Um, these are not measures that are necessary for Britain to act effectively uh, outside British homes, home waters. Um, and but your first question, your first point, I'd agree with entirely. The British Army is in many respects an imperial army. Britain does not occupy any part of Europe where there is significant military or civilian opposition. So the Ionian Islands are given up without a struggle to Greece. Uh, the majority of the Irish are loyal and indeed a very large percentage of the British army are, are Irish, Irish Catholics uh, principally, but also Irish Protestants. When Cyprus is acquired in 1878, there, that doesn't mean there needs to be an occupation force holding down hostile locals, same in Malta. So the, the British army's tasks are fundamentally um, those of imperial uh, activity, in some areas, they can lessen this in Canada after 1871, after the Treaty of Washington of that year with the Americans and after the establishment of the Dominion of Canada in 1867, uh, the British pull their garrisons out of, out of all bar two places, Halifax in Nova Scotia and Esquimalt in Vancouver Island, which are naval bases. And, other, and they say to the Canadians, up to you now, chaps. Um, and so that, as it were, the, the system is changing. I mean, the, where the army is located changes, but there is a commonality in India and for that matter in Egypt um, and other areas as well, in that a significant portion of Britain's military commitment is taken up by non-British uh, soldiers. And that tends to be forgotten. I mean, as you are aware, um, in the current so-called culture wars, there is a presentation of empire as some sort of alien British uh, imposition on other societies in the world. That, of course, is rubbish. Um, the imperial power is often just uh, taking on the position of a previous uh, imperial power and all the local management and nuances and coalitions and alliances that that involved. And you can see that with the British in India, you can see that with the British in Northeast Africa, so that if you're looking at the British campaigns in Sudan, both the 1885 unsuccessful relief of General Gordon in Khartoum and the conquest of Sudan for, uh, 
defeat of the Mahdists from 1895 to 1899, there are significant Egyptian forces as part of the British army. And that is a reflects the way that the British in Egypt um, are in part there as a new iteration of the power of the Egyptian Khedif. Um, and you see the same process in India, of course, where uh, the British had always been reliant on support from native forces and on alliances with native rulers. So I would say that it's continuity that seems to me to be the major theme rather than change. Well, you I mentioned a moment ago about recruiting um, local soldiers in the colonies. How, how did this work? The, the local British administration in each colony or territory raised, uh, as it were, a local regiment, which was there primarily for uh, policing and security issues until such time as, as um, uh, things got serious? Or uh, really, is the burden still on the regular army to get on a ship and sail out to wherever trouble is? And uh, these uh, local regiments are small, small militias that, that couldn't really fight successfully without support from the regular army. No, I mean, the process is that what uh, the historian R.G.S. Cooper, writing about India and in the Maharata Wars, called the military labour market in India, is one in which the British, uh, to a considerable extent, in competition with others, but they take over much of the military labour market, so they are paying people. You know, the, the Indians that they're recruiting, they're paying them, and they're good soldiers. And they are certainly not lesser people, as it were. And when the British Indian Army is used elsewhere, as for example, in China in the end of the 1850s um, into 1860, or in the expedition against uh, Ethiopia, I mean, it's, you know, the British generals, people like Wolsey, are very keen to have Indian soldiers in the forces. So um, they will raise uh, local uh, local men. Uh, the, the big distinction is whether they raise them themselves or whether they are produced by local allies as part of a, uh, a larger force. So, you know, there are many Indian uh, rulers, Maharaja of Kashmir, Nizam of Hyderabad, uh, who are British allies. Um, some uh, peoples whom the British have fought, the Gurkhas of Nepal, uh, the Sikhs of the Punjab, who had, you know, shown and been brilliant fighters against the British, um, are then eagerly recruited by the British themselves. So I would, you know, I, I'm not in any way trying to disparage the quality of British units who go out um, elsewhere in the world. Um, but I'm simply saying that if you're looking, for example, at Omdurman in 1898, the major battle in the defeat of the Mahdists in Sudan, uh, yes, the British play a key role, British regiments play a key role, but so do, you know, Egyptian units are also important. But one of the interesting aspects of post-imperial history is that the role of non-British troops and support in empire has been elided out by states, peoples, you know, uh, 
whatever who are uncomfortable about it just as for example you know the analogy is an interesting one anybody listening to a lot of people talking about the slave trade would think it was these harsh and ruthless brits that turned up in africa seized people and took them off for slavery which of course is rubbish the slaves were seized by africans and sold to the brits um but the point is it's it's as if there has to be an argument in order to make imperialism incredibly evil they need to create an argument in which agency doesn't exist for um those people who participated quite actively um in the imperial project who were non-british the um presiding feeling back in london at this time is still to focus on the potential of a continental uh commitment uh one that doesn't come despite scares periodic scares with, with, with the French uh, or and the the colonial wars are things that come and go but you know, isn't at the top of the, as it were, the, the hierarchy of needs or where, where is the balance between being ready to to fight in Europe uh, or um, or smaller more um, uh, restricted encounters in, in Africa and Asia Oh, the British are not assuming that they would fight a significant land war in Europe. Um, you're absolutely right. There are war panics with Russia, for example, in 1878, with France in 1898, uh, with France again um, in the late 1850s, beginning of the 1860s. But the assumption in each of those cases is that the key action would be naval. Um, and no, um, so in 1878, there's the question of whether the British Navy would get to uh, through the Dardanelles to Constantinople and help protect it against the Russians. In 1898, there's the question of what would happen in the Mediterranean if the British had a, as it were, slug out fight with the French whilst trying to protect uh, the route to Egypt and the Suez Canal. Um, so it was primarily naval. There wasn't any sense that uh, Britain would be sending an army to the continent. And of course, when the uh, Kingdom of Hanover is overrun in 1866 by the Prussians, uh, the British do not provide any assistance to the King of Hanover, even though obviously he's related to the British royal family. Same with Denmark, when Denmark is attacked by the Prussians and Austrians in um, 1864. So uh, we come to the, the period of the, the scramble for, for Africa. Um, to what extent, again, I guess this comes back to a question of uh, you know, what was planned and what was uh, ad hoc uh, made up uh, on, on the spot according to, according to, to, to needs. How, how would you describe the attitude in Whitehall of equipping the armed forces? And I'm talking about the Royal Navy as, as well as, as, as the Army in being ready to make Africa um, a, a, a primary uh, theatre of operations? Well, that's interesting. I mean, I don't think Africa ever was a primary theatre of operations, apart from during the Boer War um, of 1899 to 1902. I think India, Southern Asia as a whole, because India is taken to include Sri Lanka, Myanmar, Burma, uh, Pakistan, um, um, relations with Afghanistan, relations with Persia, 
I think India is almost always the, for, the forefront of British uh, concerns, and it's from India that expeditions would tend to be sent to China or to North Borneo or to the East African coast. So it's not, um, I would say, um, you know, I mean, I don't wish to be disparaging, but compared to concern about what's going on um, on the northwest frontier of India, uh, very few people care much about what's happening in Sierra Leone. Um, and I think one has to get this in perspective. I mean, all too much of writing of history is often bilateral. In other words, somebody writes their dissertation or their book from based on their dissertation on, shall we say, French policy in Madagascar um, at the background of the French conquest in the mid 1890s. And then they build up by that to that to show that in their eyes, Madagascar is the key imperial issue. Well, that would have surprised anybody interested at that time or working on subsequently on the French in Algeria or growing French concerns about Morocco or French commitments in Southeast Asia, and so on and so forth. So I would say that, yes, the British are interested in the scramble for Africa, but it's very specific interest. Egypt is important because of the route uh, to India, the Suez Canal, concern about the French establishing some, themselves there. Sudan becomes interesting as a traditional area of Egyptian expansion and also to prevent the Mahdist rebellion there over against Egyptian overlordship, uh, you know, as it were, producing a tsunami of protest and difficulty uh, along the Nile. Um, South Africa, the Cape Colony is important as the other route to India, but not everybody are, are interested in expansionism into the interior of, of Southern Africa, and that is an episodic matter which occurs at some periods more than others. Um, in West Africa, again, uh, the presence is patchy. I mean, the British go into Lagos, essentially, um, it, you know, in order to stop the slave trade. Um, but you know, there isn't some master plan that the British must run large chunks of, of um, Western Africa. So, uh, so I think one needs a measure of caution here. And as far as the British government is concerned, a lot of their military commitments are reactive. In other words, in Sudan against the Mahdists, um, South Africa becomes more important when the Zulus are an issue in the late 1870s and when the Boers are an issue first in the early 1880s, First Boer War 1881, and then again in the late 1890s. Um, but there isn't, um, there isn't the same degree of determination. There isn't certainly the wide-ranging determination that you see with the French, who in a way have to construct their empire in Africa because they've lost their first empire in the 18th century and under Napoleon. Um, that's not the same dynamic for Britain, I would say. And a lot of British imperial expansion vis-a-vis -vis other European powers uh, in part is a matter of responding to them. So for example, the British go into Upper, in, upper Burma in 1885 because they're worried about French expansionism from um, uh, what would, we would now call North Vietnam. The British are concerned about Southern Sudan because they're worried about French expansion uh, from the area of Chad. The British are concerned about what we would call Zimbabwe because they're worried about German expansion 
from German Southwest Africa. The British are concerned in Kenya because they're worried about German expansion from German, what we would call ta uh, tan Tanganyika, German East Africa. So in part, it's reaction and action. And the scramble for Africa, so-called, is, is largely motivated not uh, you know, by some sort of racist hatred of Africans. It's actually primarily another aspect of the European confrontations. But the interesting point is that after 1871, between then and 1914, the major powers uh, are particularly apt to do that competition, as it were, um, by second hand. It's like the Cold War being waged as a struggle for influence in parts of Central America, the Caribbean, uh, the Middle East and um, Southern Asia. So I, there wasn't this great concern to send British regiments to fight hither and thither across the, uh, the, the map of Africa. I was very interested in something you said um, a few minutes ago about uh, India as uh, a garrison and a base for, for operations elsewhere, either in, in Asia Pacific, obviously on the northern frontier, um, with the great game in, in Russia, but also elsewhere. And I, I, I wonder whether you could um, just give a sense of the weight of forces and resources, how significant India was, not just in terms of you know, holding India, but um, how central forces based in India were to the wider scheme of global British operations. Um. I think that's a very good question. I think India was seen as absolutely crucial to Britain's global role. And it leads the British possibly to become disproportionately anxious about Russia because the practicality was that the ability of Russia to project its power through Central Asia areas like Bukhara, Samarkand, Tashkent, Kiva, and to uh, project that to, um, uh, you know, through Afghanistan, uh, it to the Northwest frontier. I think that would have been astonishingly difficult. I mean, you know, you get crises, the Punjda, the Penjda crisis in 1885, and people are talking about, you know, how Russian approaches to the Northern frontier of Afghanistan is a, might be the cause of war between Britain and, and Russia. <laughs> I've actually been to Afghanistan. You know, people have got absolute, you know, they were drawing lines on a map without having any idea about the difficulties of communication across these. So I think to a certain extent, um, the British uh, exaggerated the, the threat to their position in South Asia. Um, and you could argue, if you like, might have been better advised devoting more attention to other spheres. But on the other hand, you could say, well, they had these possessions in India, they had a significant army there, much of it Indian, it was easiest to use by, um, as it were, uh, chasing Alfredis and others around the, uh, you know, SWAT and places on the Northwest frontier. The opening and control of the Suez Canal, um, that makes India more important as a base for operations or that you know troops from India can can move around or or less important in the sense that um, um, troops from Britain can move through the Mediterranean through the Suez Canal to wherever they they are deployed 
Well, certainly the latter and also the former. I mean, troops from India go to um, Cyprus and Malta uh, during the 1877-1878 crisis with uh, confrontation with Russia. Uh, Britain doesn't have vast numbers of troops to send to the Indian Ocean, and also there would have been big issues with disease had they done so. Um, but uh, the Suez Canal is important. I mean, obviously, it cuts the uh, the time it's going to take in order to get to India and beyond India, to China, to Australasia, to Malaya. Um, and from that point of view, it's significant. It's important as a trading link, which I think is more so almost than it's important strategically. Um, but obviously, you know, the Suez Canal makes sense once you have steam power. I mean, as you may know, navigating in the Red Sea with um, uh, by sail was not easy because of the local conditions, sailing conditions. But once you have steam power, and of course you have the availability of coaling stations, and once you've acquired Aden, Aden becomes a very important bunkering station for British ships, um, then it does, yes, it's a geopolitical axis, um, but it's not as though the British necessarily have to send vast numbers of troops in that direction. The Second Boer War, um, 1899 to 1902, does that mark an end of a, of a phase in British imperial uh, military strategy, you know, the, the British win, similar to the Crimean War, you know, the, the, the British are on the winning side in the end, but, you know, there, there are a lot of bloody noses to get then. It's a, a difficult war, uh, you know, fought with guerrilla tactics and, and all the rest of it. Um, should we just see that Boer War in isolation or does it actually mark some wider turning point? Again, an excellent question. Um, I mean, it certainly led to anxiety in Britain about British effectiveness. It uh, leads to a debate about whether conscription should be introduced, and that helps to be the background to the discussion of yeomanry regiments and the territorial army. It also contributes to the debate that you see in the 1900s encompassing both Conservatives and Liberals as to whether the British are in some way degenerate uh, and need to be strengthened, the, as it were, a kind of social Darwinianism um, in which the, um, the idea is that empire, the Boy Scouts, uh, social welfare will all help to make the British a fitter stock and therefore able to take on this challenge. So yes, there are, there are questions. Um, the practicality, um, first of all, the British did badly in the initial stages, not new. I mean, after all, they'd been beaten by the, um, uh, the Afghans at Maywand in 1880, where John Watson in the Sherlock Holmes stories gets a bullet. Um, they'd been beaten by these Zulus at Islandwanda in, um, just before that, 1879. Um, so yes, they do badly in the initial stages, very badly. They, haven't, they don't appreciate the extent to which the uh, Boer weapon, weaponry, smokeless powder, use of Mauser rifles, long-range sniping is going to, as it were, hit British forces deployed in the open. Um, they don't appreciate the degree to which mounted infantry give the Boer 
uh, operational mobility. And of course, the Boer have the initiative, take the attack, and that gives them great advantages. And, you know, as you, you get the sieges of British positions, you get, uh, you know, Black Week, all the rest of it. It's worth bearing in mind the British very rapidly rally. Um, they, I mean, obviously their positions hold. So just as Lucknow had held in the Indian mutiny, so Ladysmith and Mafekin hold. Um, they get some good generals deployed um, with more troops. Um, so Kitchener, who'd conquered uh, Sudan, and Roberts, the, who had uh, marched to the relief of Kandahar in the Second Anglo-Afghan War, who were the two best generals available. Uh, they deploy a lot of manpower, put up taxation accordingly. Um, and, you know, in 1900, British troops take the major settlements, the major positions, Bloemfontein, Pretoria, Johannesburg. I mean, and thereafter, it's really a guerrilla war, which it's difficult to do much about, as with the nature of guerrilla wars. But the Boers certainly aren't winning. Um, and the British are in control of most positions, and it's just a question of how to find an outcome. They've also deterred other powers from intervening, particularly and specifically Germany, uh, which had thought of doing so. Um, so no, in that respect, I think you could argue it was a success. Um, and in strategic terms, the British become the dominant power in Southern Africa. Uh, that gives them access to and control over a major source of bullion, which is very important, is to be very important in World War One. And despite the degree to which a certain number of Afrikaans in World War One and to a lesser extent in World War Two are treasonable, and in World War One a certain small number of them support the Germans in Southwest Africa, nevertheless, the bulk of South Africa is loyal in both World War One and World War Two and provides significant numbers of, of troops for the British Empire, uh, whether it's, for example, um, you know, operating in East Africa, whether against the Germans in World War One, whether it's helping to capture Madagascar from Vichy France in 1942, etc, etc, etc. So I would say in strategic terms, it's a success. Uh, most military commentators, particularly in the general public, unfortunately don't understand st strategy, wouldn't know it if they saw it. Um, so most people tend to think of t t things in tactical terms or at base best operational. And from, from that perspective, it isn't brilliant. I mean, high costs are taken in order to take part in the learning curve to victory, but the learning curve is achieved. So, you know, uh, I don't think you could argue fairly that it showed the British in a disastrous position. I mean, it's there's no real equivalent to the abysmal failure of the Ethio of the Italians at Adowa in 1896 when they're smashed by the by Menelik II of Ethiopia, and that's the end of the Italian attempt to conquer Ethiopia until 1935-1936. There's no equivalent to the abysmal disaster of the Russians against the Japanese in 1905. So there's no attempt equivalent to the failure of the Spaniards in Cuba against the Americans in 1898. So I think one's got to contextualize this. People aren't good at contextualizing things. I, I was recently did a debate on the on the you know video for I think intelligence squared and the chairperson you know it was about empire and the chairperson you know I was as it were in to talk about British empire it was being castigated I said well you've got to see things in your in the broader context and the chairperson said oh well that's just what up Alsabri up and I said 
actually it's called context and if you don't understand context you can't make judgments so i said i would say if you're looking at the context of what is going on at this period i would not put the emphasis on British failure. If you want to look at other failures of that period, you could think of the Chinese, the box of failure in China in 1900, the relief of the legations. You can go on and on and on. Um, so on the whole, the British are still militarily very, very successful. I mean, in Africa as a whole, um, as we've already mentioned, they've crushed the Mahdists in Sudan. Uh, they've defeated their opponents in modern day um, Zimbabwe. They're about at the beginning of the 20th century to conquer northern Nigeria. And I think, you know, I'd like on the next program to move on to World War One. I. I think we can call it a pause here. But I think what one needs to do is to understand that the general tendency to in some, I'm not saying you're doing this, Graham, but the general tendency to rubbish the British past, to write down achievements is all too easy. And it doesn't help us make judgments about uh, how people are doing in comparative terms. So let's continue this next week uh, looking at World War One, and I think we've covered quite a lot of ground today. We've covered a lot of ground, a lot of territories, and a lot of years. Professor Jeremy Black, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.